Welcome to the FSF and Tapestry podcast. Our guest this week is Wendy Scott, a Frubelian early years teacher and psychologist with extensive experience in the PVI and school sectors. Wendy has been a head teacher, a senior lecturer at Roehampton, a trainer and an inspector. She led the British Association for Early Childhood Education and chaired the National Early Childhood Forum before becoming a specialist advisor to the DFES. She's currently president of TACTIC, the Association for Professional Development in Early Years, and represents Early Years on the board of the National Association for Primary Education. Wendy was honoured with an OBE for Services to Education in 2015. So, Wendy, we wanted to begin by asking you, how does the Frevelian philosophy underpin your work in early years education? You have to remember my vintage. I trained at the Frobel Institute um, 60 years ago now. It it was another lifetime. I had run away from um, an academic life. I'd been to seven different schools, four different secondary schools, and I was headed for Cambridge. In fact, the only thing the head of my last school wrote on his testimonial for me was this girl should have gone to Cambridge. But I ran away instead. I don't know what it was. I had had a fairly disrupted childhood. Um, I was born before the war. And I understand more and more about the difficulties that um, everybody faced at that time. Um, but I was sent off to boarding school and I was four and my sister was three and it, it wasn't a good thing to do but it was a life-saving thing because we were living in Bomb Alley in Kent. So that was a Montessori school actually but my family were very dedicated to progressive education and there was a long history in the family. So to my surprise when I came back from my little jaunt to America where I worked um, but I did come back and I went to the Froebel Institute I have no idea why I went there except that at the last secondary school I went to there was um, a the junior school was Froebel led by a Froebel trained teacher and I just related so strongly to the respect for children that I saw there And I think it was partly driven by the fact that our family had had a a difficult time. And I think a lot of people come into work in early years or social work or perhaps any service industry, any work like that, because they're trying to um, prevent other people going through the sorts of difficulties that they had. And the degree I did was psychology. It's not an accident. I think you're just searching to understand, aren't you? But the Froebel Institute at that time was a very remarkable place. The principal was an extraordinary woman. And the staff, when you think in in the late 50s, early 60s, they were the women who, because of the war, didn't have family life. They didn't get a husband in most cases. And the people there dedicated themselves to us. We were like their children, I think. And the kind of insight, support, extra thinking and extra and very individual um, approaches that they brought for us was was hugely influential. And they were academically too, um, breaking new ground really. So we had rigor, but we also had huge support and a very, very broad curriculum. And everything that happened, you could look at underneath and why and what about it. And of course, the training based on Pro- Provenian principles was very much about um, 
supporting children in their own um, experiments and adventures. Froegel himself didn't have a very easy childhood, actually. Um, but what, a, what an amazing thinker. I've had the opportunity three years ago now to go to Karl Hopal, which was his birthplace, as you'll know. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, I don't know how to describe it. It was uplifting, insightful, uh, and deeply affecting when you realised this, this little boy whose father was a pastor uh, who lived um, really quite an isolated life. But the way he grew up and the way there was something in him that led him to want to support children. And he did go and work in Switzerland and he was... Um, mm-hmm. You're going to have to cut this one, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Because um, my sister went to work there too, actually. Oh, are you thinking of Pestalozzi? I am thinking of Pestalozzi, yeah. yes. He, Froebel was influenced by Pestalozzi. He did spend a year over there in Switzerland. Mm. But when you go to his birthplace, and they do have a museum there too, um, you can see how he emphasised hands-on because his training school is still there. It's actually used now for... Um, children who are in need of support, social services, kids, they, they're bored there. Um, so in a way, his principles are being carried on, albeit with older children, but the principles are true for all of us, aren't they? And we do all learn. I think the hands-on stuff is terribly important. And he did have some um, rather, um, not prescriptive, but very clear expectations of, about how children would do woodwork, how children would fold paper and all of those things. But when you think about the time that he did it and the way that he um, encouraged parents to think about um, children's real needs and emerging needs and potential, it was wonderful. And it was embodied very strongly at the Froebel Institute in Roehampton. And, and I think actually quite a lot of the support for the Probal ideas did stem from women mostly actually who came from Germany um, and community play things also were influenced when they started in America in that way. So for me it was it was deeply influential and it was just an intuitive thing that I did which was for me very healing and very right and I'm still... <laughs> convinced there's nothing more important than what happens for young children and their families of course you can't separate them out um, that thing in the bible about the sins of the fathers shall be visited upon the children yea unto the third and fourth generation i don't see it as sins but the difficulties that families go through uh, you know if you think about the refugees all of that it, it, people carry it they do their best to counter it but it it it's something that we need to recognise. It's about isn't it? Building relationships. It is about, yes. With everybody. And, of course, we've learned over the last six months or so how important those relationships are between schools and settings and the families at home and Indeed. parents. Can you tell us a little bit about your views of why working in partnership with parents is so crucial for young children? Well, it, it does go back to this this continuing thread and the importance of, of inheritance, but also circumstances. Um, I'm not sure that parents anticipate what a huge thing it is to have a child. I certainly didn't. I can remember I'd been teaching six or seven years, all young children up to five, reception perhaps and when a parent asked me 
have you got children of your own? I thought, how's that relevant? I've worked with hundreds of children. (laughs) But then when I had one, I realised why she asked. Uh, You just don't know who you're going to be gifted with. And mine didn't sleep for three years, so that made quite a difference. I appreciate that. I (laughs) didn't sleep for three years either. (laughs) I think it's very, very salutary. I mean, the whole process of giving birth which men don't go through, but they can they can empathise. There was a man, wasn't there? Sorry, cut this one out. This is <laughs> there was a guy who had a who who became pregnant, wasn't there? Uh, yeah. And I think merging of roles now is probably quite helpful, and it's much easier for parents to work in partnership, assuming that there is a partner, yeah. whether it's a, a same-sex relationship or whatever. But uh, being a single parent is very tough. And I did spend most of my early teaching life working in demanding areas. And in fact, I was head in a... Well, I'll tell you about that later. Um, the younger children are, the more important it is to understand them in context. And there was a move early on, which you'll be well familiar with now, of home visits. But that was quite um, revolutionary when it happened. I can, I can absolutely, especially now I am a parent and grandparent, I can see how that link is important. But I also understand um, when I was working in documents, for example, parents were quite embarrassed about their living conditions. And I remember persuading one mum who first said, oh, no, and then she invited me around. But bless her heart, she polished everything. She made the fire up. It wasn't um, a relaxed, let's get to know each other. It was, my God, I've got to shape up. You know, here's the teacher coming in. So it's, it's important, I think, to make it part of the routine so that everybody knows it's going to happen. And the parents should be able to control where it happens, not necessarily at home. They could come into school too. But it is a question of having that time and establishing that relationship and the trust. And I have seen such remarkable work going on in nurseries, um, preschools, all sorts of settings. There's, there's no magic formula, is there? But um, it takes my breath away sometimes uh, because I judge nursery of the year. And that gives me an amazing opportunity to see people working. I do remember the head of one very big nursery in a very disadvantaged area. And and I asked her how, given the poverty in the area, and um, how how she managed. And it was to do with staff training, of course, but it was also to do um, with respecting and listening to all the parents. And she said, financially, it was a big nursery and that's what made it viable. They did all sorts of things. And eventually, when I kept asking for more detail on how does she manage that bit and what about the Forest School and uh, voluntary work and all the rest of it, how does she organize? She just sat back in her chair. She said, Wendy, it's in the soul. And I've never forgotten that, and she is right. And there are people who work in that way with total commitment, and it's not a job. Yes. And I think if parents recognise that, they are handing over to us their most precious possession. Um, and that trust is essential. Yes. What happens if, if you're working with parents who may not, on the surface, appear to be 
Yes, I've done. Yes, <laughs> sorry. Finish your question. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> how, how we've had a, a lot of discussions and, and seen lots of blogs over the last six months about some settings trying everything in their power to engage yeah. certain parents, and and it's not happening, and they're very worried about that, particularly. Yes. Closure is going to happen again, and and so on. Have you yes. got any clever tricks and, and tips that? Well, I can just tell you about my experience. Perhaps I think it's worth persevering. I can remember um, I was working in a demountable classroom in a new nursery when Margaret um, Thatcher expanded nursery education, and it was a very difficult. Um, the premises weren't very helpful, and the head wasn't at all interested in early years. He was frightened, I think, of young children. But there was a, a very large mother, single parent, who would stand on the steps. She had mixed-race children, and she would stand on the steps, and it was a very narrow entrance, so she more or less blocked it because she was very large. And she would say, this is a dreadful nursery. I don't want my sons coming in here. And then she'd hand her sons over. Um, but it was very frightening for everybody, including the staff. Um, and it was very difficult to know quite how to deal with it. Um, it happened by chance. We organised a sponsored SLIM, and it turned out that she wasn't able to write her own name up on the list. She she knew she wanted to join the sponsored SLIM. Um, and when we got across that, I think she was defending herself by attacking us. She felt very inadequate indeed. In the end, I was going around to take her daughter's temperature when she was ill, and she became our best advocate, but it was a question of breaching that huge insecurity that she had and, and the feeling that the nursery gave her that she just wasn't good enough. Mm. And there were a lot of parents in that sort of situation. And what I did then, because I was a single parent myself with young children, I couldn't stay on after school for very long to do talking. We had a monthly workshop in the evening, not on Coronation Street night, and um, it was just open door and I'd be there and we had all sorts of stuff that we wanted to paint and repair. It wasn't quite the same funding in those days and um, people, we built a sandpit. We did all sorts of things together. And in the end, instead of joining the workshop, I was making the coffee because there were so many people there and they were chatting and talking and it turned into a therapy session and all sorts of things were shared. And in the end, we started to get speakers in and the health visitors came. And, and we just had this monthly, very informal meeting, which came out of my own in, um, lack of availability, really. But because it was a mixed catchment, eventually it turned into such a strong community. And some of the more advantaged parents would go around and volunteer and help one you know the one who had 14 children and no money for shopping and um, it was a sort of home start I suppose um, just within that nursery with among the 30 families there and uh, that, that <laughs> I think if, if people are prepared uh, it's huge now and there's such a lot and you know a lot about all the record keeping and so forth we weren't burdened in that way we just worked with the children and the families and it was a verbal understanding and we didn't have the profile um, it, it was it was much freer and I think it is more difficult now I, I'm not sure that teachers would feel that they could do as I did to go and collect a child whose family would just weren't equipped to bring him into school and of course you needed the school more than the others and we uh, were able to have some children stay for lunch if they didn't have enough food at home 
and because the head wasn't at all interested, I was free to do whatever I could. And I don't think that is so possible. But it does come down to personal relationships and trust and staff making time and maybe having a private place. I know some nurses um, deal with uh, supervised access, don't they? Things like that. And it's, it's a question of recognising the value of working with parents and the hand over time with the child is as much about reassuring the parents. Um, I can remember parents settling a new child who would stay until the child cried because the parent couldn't afford not to be missed. <laughs> and, and there was one child who took a long while to settle and cried heartbroken when her mother went away. But I used to get her to ring her mother 10 minutes later when the mother was home because the child was fine. And you need to reassure parents, don't you, really? Um, and then they'll start sharing. Um, the difficulty then is, uh, when are you overlapping into what is actual social services business? When should you start reporting things that you've been told in confidence? It's a very, very sensitive and, and complex task. So you need your principles, you need your own emotional support and help and strength. But um, it does transform life. If parents feel confident and comfortable and that they can cope, it makes all the difference to the children. Mm -hmm. it, 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 you have to find a way. And I think more time should be allowed for that and maybe a bit more training. Uh, Multi-professional working helps too. Um, but again, that's very individual, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Can I give you another story? Yes, <laughs> oh, yes please. Well, there were this nursery that was set up from scratch in a very, very needy area. We had... Um, four health visitors in the town and they were all very very different and two of them just didn't bother to come at all and the children would go for their routine checks um, and, and one of them she had very nice long legs actually we had a low fence around the nursery and she would just as she was passing climb over the fence which of course wouldn't be approved of and the children <laughs> couldn't do it but she would just call by and she knew the families and she was very, very interested in seeing the children in the nursery. She saw the point of observing them and she got a better understanding. So long before we had Sure Start or um, multi-professional working, long before the Children Act, it is possible to do it if the relationships are there and if the people recognise the value of it. And um, I had social workers as well who would come in we had a spare room next door and we used it actually for confidential interviews so if you can be creative and, and understand the value of that as a teacher or a yes it, sorry I'm talking about a context of school this isn't the same necessarily in the nursery is it but I have seen such extraordinarily um, generous outreach and time and ideas sharing between different professionals. Uh, and Sure Start, of course, was, was the mm. ultimate in that, wasn't it? Yes. Much missed. And early excellence centres, actually, which predated Sure Start. I don't know whether you've had any contact with those. They've kind of disappeared now. They have. I, yes, I had, um, I had an advisory role in, in one. Um, in Did you? So you yeah. Again, that, that's... It's just about hanging on in there, but you know, yeah. 
Mm. Yes, I'm going to try not to be too critical about what's happening, but and not happening. I think it's shocking the way um, that early years has been ignored during the pandemic. It's Mm. unbelievable, actually, that they don't understand that that's the time when you make the best investment. Sure. As one of our colleagues who runs her own nursery, Rebecca, um, who we all know at the Foundation Stage Forum very well, said that they don't know what we do or why we're here. And I think no. that just about sums it all up. Really. It, it's really, really difficult. And I may or may not start talking to you about ministers. My... <laughs> so feel free. Go for it. While we're talking about the subject of the role of teachers and practitioners, um, what is their role in, in young children's learning? There's lots of discussion about the ideal balance between direct teaching, supported learning, child-initiated learning. What, what's your view on the role and, and what do teachers do to help children? <laughs> Depends on your definition of teaching, doesn't it? Mm. Mm. And my definition of teaching is enabling people to learn. But I don't think that's the definition that Ofsted would recognise, and certainly ministers, current ministers, think that teaching is telling. And I vividly remember um, one of the iterations of the national curriculum, every section and every subject started with children should be taught. And I questioned that uh, for any age group, uh, particularly in early years, but... I pointed out that you could teach till you're blue in the face, but if they're not learning, what's the point? (laughs) Um, And the answer I got was really interesting and very true. You cannot legislate for learning. So their answer um, in in the department was to instruct people about what children should be taught. And actually, pupils can be taught in that way, but young children aren't yet pupils. And they have their own very individual early experience, which is extremely influential. Um, And my definition of teaching, yes, is to enable people to learn. And you have to start with a child, and that's deeply embedded in the Frobelian philosophy. I think the NNEB course was very good, and I think it's much missed. I think a lot of people would say that. I had the privilege of assessing NNEB courses in the past, and it's such a big part of that was observation. So that, um, in each of their years, they would do a, a focused observation. And I think that's sadly missing now, because where else can you start? You need to get to know what this means to every child and um, I think this belongs in a different section perhaps but when you go to Piaget about accommodation and assimilation I don't think people look at that so much now but when he started his observational work which he did with his own children it was really very influential and significant and his thesis is was that um Children build on what they already know and they assimilate new knowledge into the framework of information and understanding that they have. 
equally new experience can stimulate them to accommodate and change their views in the light of new information and knowledge and experience. And I think that dynamic is really very important and very interesting. And for young children, of course, so much of it is new. If you observe babies, they are scientists. It's really um, important. So the role of teachers and practitioners, the ideal balance between direct teaching and supported learning, um, I think direct teaching comes a bit later on, really, especially if we're talking about curriculum content and tests. I think we start that too early. There's no reason at all if children ask questions, there's every reason why we should answer the question within the range of their understanding. And you can see on their faces when they lose it, but it is possible to give too much information, but it's a pity to miss those teachable moments. So it's very subtle. Um, direct teaching sometimes, sometimes it's a stimulus, sometimes it's a thinking aloud and you're just saying, oh, I wonder how that happened, or a spider's web, what, what's all that about? All sorts of things, but usually it's linked to something that they initiate and they observe and they either talk about or you can see with the baby that that's where their um, attention is. And a lot of talking, but I don't, not direct teaching exactly. I don't I think it's more subtle than that. Mm. Wendy, can we ask you about using guidance documents? So I'm thinking, how can we use guidance documents to create a developmentally appropriate curriculum rather than expecting those documents to provide for us? And I guess what we're really thinking here is, can we use guidance and documents and kind of keep our own personal principles intact when we're we're teaching and learning with young children i think it's probably getting more and more difficult partly because there's more prescription and partly because the training i think isn't um as challenging as we certainly had in our generation we had to make up our minds and always go back to principle to make up our minds uh, and you're making hundreds of decisions a day in relation to individual children, groups of children, staff, parents. It's um, very stimulating and very demanding. Um, I, I think guidance documents are really more about training, aren't they? And perhaps shaping principles if they're good enough. I look back and I really miss birth to three matters, for example, because that went from principle through to observation to how that would influence practice. And I'm very sorry that that's not accessible anymore because I think that was a very good model, especially for people perhaps who aren't very experienced or who haven't had a deep training because it always asked the question, um, what comes next and why? Where is this child? What's right for this individual child? And it is a professional responsibility to match our understanding of what children need. And some guidance isn't relevant. And then we're coming up against some of that at the moment. And I certainly think that the pressures ex exerted by um, the SATs and the profile, um, or the top-down pressures are very, very counterproductive and, and a total misunderstanding. There's a difference between children's intellectual development and their academic um, achievement and the important thing in the early years is their intellectual challenge 
and satisfaction that comes from that. And they can they can amaze us at the questions that they ask and the kinds of ways of thinking that they bring. And we can learn from them. We do. Absolutely. That's very interesting what you're saying about the, the top-down pressure. We're hearing at the Foundation Stage Forum from hundreds of reception teachers yeah. who are already looking at the new Development Matters document yeah. that has come out and already want to turn it into learning targets and intentions. Yeah. Tick them That's not what it's about. Which is absolutely, it's not what the last document was about. It's certainly not what this one is about. No. I did. Tremendous pressure to do that. Where's that pressure coming from? Yes. Do you think it comes partly because we now have had really a generation of, of prescribed curriculum and students themselves, so young teachers now have been through that kind of system. There hasn't been quite the same freedom of thought and expression that um, younger, earlier, genera- earlier generations had. Perhaps um, I'm trying to find it. Maybe you can help me. I've combed through the 1944 Education Act um, because I have a very deep-seated memory, and I think it was Rab Butler, the Education Secretary at that time, who said clearly, it is the job of government to set the parameters of the curriculum, but it is not the job of ministers to tell teachers how to teach. Mm-hmm. Now, we've got ministers who do tell teachers how to teach, and we have Ofsted, who does not function in the way that HMI used to do, um, I can, I've got some interesting observations on Ofsted through my own experience. Um, Ofsted is an enforcer now, isn't it? Yes. Do you think that is ultimately what's happening? So head teachers still think they want to see tracking evidence of children's progress. So reception teachers feel obliged to show that to their head teachers and senior leadership team in the form of charts and data and pretty points. It's really, really hard. I've got people who are in that role who are imbued with the principles, but because so much hangs on it, and it's particularly Austed judgments, actually, they will change. And I am very, very relieved that the Austed definition of teaching, which is brilliant, I think... Could you put that up in connection with all of this? I think it's absolutely excellent. And it is still in their education inspection framework. And I think if people go to that and remind inspectors, they might feel a bit braver. But um, a lot of, well, a lot of head teachers don't know much about early years and feel very, um, actually, probably challenged by young children. I certainly remember heads like that. (laughs) Sorry, I can tell you some stories. <laughs> take that out, take that out. <laughs> That's exactly what we want, the gossip. <laughs> oh, well, you know. Thinking still a little bit about documents, Wendy. Yes. Thinking about the ELG assessments and reception teachers. And we, want, we were just wondering, how can reception teachers have the confidence to, and this is a very Frobelian thought, start with the child, start where the child is, how can they have the confidence to do that rather than aiming for those end of year ELG assessments? Absolutely. That's a huge question. It's a very important question. And the answer isn't very obvious. In fact, it's not getting easier because the pressures are greater, the expectations, the learning goals. And 
many of the children who are expected to meet these goals are not of statutory school age. The summer born issues are huge. And I don't think when Nick Gibb mandated that all children should enter school um, in the September of the year in which they become five, um, recognised that uh, <laughs> they're not statutory school age. Our statutory school age is much younger than almost everywhere else. And they are not yet pupils. <laughs> they're children. And I, I have been exercised as some born myself with some born children um, for years with this issue. And when I was a local authority inspector, I did do it as an Ofsted inspector as well, actually. I used to encourage teachers to write the names of the children in their registers not in alphabetic order, not separated by boys and girls, but in birth date order. So every day when they did the register, they were reminded who were the youngest children. Now you can't, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're slower learners, not at all. But there are huge issues in terms of life experience when you're four. Um, it, it's a it's a big chunk of life, and it makes a huge difference. And I am I'm angry now, actually, that this is not understood, and there is not sufficient recognition of children with special needs. Um, these expectations are applied in a blanket way, and if you don't meet them, then you're failing. And I think that's a very very destructive start to, to your career in education, and it should be avoided. Sure. It's such a deficit model. It's, it's really unhelpful. And so the kind of ongoing records that you keep, you, that you encourage, um, are, are important. But it is time consuming. And I could wish that everyone felt that they could just have confidence in the natural developmental process that children go through. And you can support it better if you provide interesting things for them to do, if you follow their interests, you challenge them, if you provide them with interesting books rather than phonics. And, and don't get me on phonics. Um, <laughs> no, well, it is outrageous. Ofsted... Uh, this is all, uh, I've written to the chief inspector about this, so I can say it. Um, the expectations that Ofsted place on um, teacher training, they called it training, they now call it teacher ITE, I'm pleased to say, teacher education, um, are that in terms of early literacy, and this applies to people training to be early years teachers, um, and I said, yes, it's, it's teacher education. Um, if, if they do anything other than teach systematic synthetic phonics as an approach to reading, the course will be deemed to require improvement. For people who are going to work with two and three-year-olds, this is preposterous. And furthermore, it runs counter to Ofsted's clear statement that they do not prescribe methods of teaching. Mm. And they look at the outcomes. And, and I'm beyond furious. I mean, it's just unacceptable. And it's very hard to accept the unacceptable. And I think it's going to cause difficulties in teacher education if that comes through, because um, directors of education like head teachers will find that um, the courses that they're offering, which may be broader, are going to have to tighten up, narrow down in a way that it, they will know is not suitable. I think I'd better not quote who, who it was, but I had a very reassuring conversation 
um, with the director of education who said, well, our courses are going to continue to prepare teachers to help children enjoy books, appreciate them, uh, share stories, and do all the things that are very much part of early literacy. I, I can't believe, well, it is in the public domain now. When I tried to um, lobby, I went with the primary umbrella group to talk to Nick Gibb, who has been schools minister for a very long time, and he was reviewing the national curriculum. And I went with um, colleagues from all the subject associations because he didn't agree to meet us. And I went first to talk about early literacy because early is his first, it should be. And he put his hands on his ears. He said, I'm not listening. Um, that's just bad manners, actually. <laughs> but it's, it's the arrogance of that is unacceptable. And it's hard to accept the unacceptable. So when we come to the last question, you asked me what I'm going to do in the future with NAEP and Lactic <laughs> and all the other organisations I work with. I'm going to plod on. <laughs> <laughs> it's... It. <laughs> Uh, that's why I want to know about the bit where Butler, I think, said it's not for ministers to define the way that teaching should be done. Particularly when they have no practical experience of being a teacher. No. Their, their experience is boarding school, all boys, no children of their own, no, not the right life experience to help them to understand, but also not the modesty or even indeed the intellectual curiosity to want to find out. Certainly not if you're covering your ears and saying I'm not going to listen, yes. This is, this is leading to the next question really I think, isn't it Helen, which is that um, England has, I'm going to say in the past, England has in the past had an excellent reputation for its early years pedagogy and curriculum. Are we losing that reputation now and if so why? <laughs> because people who don't understand are taking too much power and Ofsted is part of it too I had a similar discussion with Chris Woodhead um, so that was a generation ago now but um, his idea it was very secondary um, oriented and when I asked him how he justified a particular Ofsted video which is now withdrawn by the way um, he told me to go back and look at it. He said the arguments in the video and I went back and looked at it and um, I could see, I realised he was looking at the teaching and I was looking at the learning which was obstructed because the teachers didn't understand. They were telling and it was premature. Um, I, I think England has had a very strong heritage um, from Froebel, actually, that was really the start, Pestalozzi too, to an extent, but Froebel, Montessori, the Macmillan sisters who picked it up. Um, and we had a very open mind, um, and I think it is a traditional characteristic of the English to look around and pick ideas that work and good ideas and um, make them our own. And we have a fantastic heritage um, which meets the requirements of the Children Act because the Macmillan sisters understood the need for children who weren't having enough food and who were living in difficult conditions to have those addressed as well as their learning potential. Um, 
and there have been a succession, mostly women, but not only, of people who on principle have not only developed our work here, but looked around the world and taken ideas from Piaget, from all sorts of influences. Um, sorry. Um, yes, yeah, so you're going to ask me about I'll, I'll come back to that one. I totally agree that, that we... But it, 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 sorry. Kei and Reggio Emilia and Montessori yes. and amalgamating it and creating our own recipe. We, got, we have been, and that is, a, 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 I think it's a, an English-British talent. Um, you, your question is about England. Hmm. And I think we had a well-earned reputation and it was um, a... a reflection of the free thinking that was possible um, to some extent private education because then people were able to like the free schools now actually they have more scope and they can try out ideas but I've had um, quite a lot of experience in China David Blunkett when he was education secretary so again we're talking about 20 years ago a bit more 98, I think, he went um, to Beijing to look at adult education and they'd asked, they'd invited him and he asked a colleague from Islington who was an adult education specialist to go with him. And while they were there, I don't know why, it came to them all that where you start was just as important and people who benefit from adult education would also benefit from high quality early education. And as a result of that, this adult education specialist came back to London and um, was ch charged with setting up a visit for Chinese educators, early educators to come along. Um, I was about to go and work with the DFE. I was the chief executive of the base, British Association for Early, Ch early Child Education. And this woman kept ringing me up and emailing me and writing to me and I was in my last week and I had a lot to do in the end it was easier just to say to her for goodness sake I'll make two hours on Thursday afternoon send them around than keep answering her her question and I'm so glad it happened this was a group of um, tutors from the university in Beijing and um, we had a, a long conversation which was picked up later and it went on for some years um, and the lead person had trained nearly all the earliest teachers in China. They were all her students who had gone out. And China was beginning to recognise the logic, and it is logical, that um, the best place to start is at the beginning. And that's when you can have the most influence, and it's when you can make the best investment, which is partly why I'm so bewildered by the current government's lack of interest and awareness because you do you save money as well as grief if you invest effectively in the early years don't you so we did a lot of work in China and it was extremely interesting I'm not sure how embedded it became but at the time, it was it was really interesting. And the first one, three of us went, and I, when one of us was speaking, I sat right at the back. It was a huge hall with about 200 students in it. And it was actually three rooms. And I sat at the back because I wanted to know if they could even hear what was going on. And I wanted to get some notion of what the interpretation was like. There they were eating their breakfast, bless their hearts. And, and students don't have an easy time in China, really. They didn't at that point. But you could hear what was being said, and it was a, a revelation to them. It was a whole different way of thinking. 
And if we manage to have such an influence in China, I don't know why we can't have a similar influence on our ministers here, because the logic is impeccable. The research is there. There's a lot of evidence. We know, you know, you're committed. You know that observations of what children do matter, and China got it. I've got some very interesting stories from them, but there won't be time for those. (laughs) Is there anywhere in the world that you could pinpoint that demonstrates really excellence in early years? (laughs) Well, I would say anywhere where former schooling starts later than us. We know, we know. Um, I don't think there's a country in Europe that starts at four. Um, And there is research, sorry, I must get this in somewhere, you may move it to somewhere else. Um, There's a guy who's, he's working in Germany now, but he's a New Zealander, I think, but he did some, yes, it was New Zealand research. And he looked at um, test results for children who had reading tests when they were five and started formal reading. Um, And he compared them with children, I think it was in Steiner schools, where the reading, formal reading teaching starts at seven. And at 11, guess what? They did just as well when they started the formal reading um, later. And he's, he's done further research which endorses that. And I just wish people understood that there's more to reading than decoding print. <laughs> there's much more to it. Um, so... So that's behind my comment that most countries where schooling starts at six or seven um, will be doing better in terms of literacy, but achievement generally, I think, because as they get older, they're more able to take instruction and understand it and appreciate it and critique it and take a benefit from it. But fundamentally, I think anywhere where the focus is learner-centred. And that means adults learning too. Children do teach us as well if we observe and pay attention. So I would look for a learner-centred place and where there's respect for children's ideas. And yes, Reggio, absolutely. Um, I've had the benefit. I went very early on to Reggio with a couple of highly respected colleagues and it blew our minds. And we did ask, actually, what happens when the children go into the more formal Italian system when they're six. And they smiled. They said, we think our children have an extra pocket. And it's like A.S. Neal at Summerhill when people asked him, you know, very free school with a lot of um, individual responsibility handed over to the children, pupils, they are, they're secondary. And somebody asked him, I, I remember at a lecture I went to that he gave, somebody asked him, what happens when these kids from your very free school, where they make the decisions and the plans and the rules, when they go, they're called up into the army? So you can tell it was a long time ago. And he said something a bit similar. He said, if they understand the reasons for it, they will do it and they'll do it better than anybody else. And that turns out to be true. Um, so Reggio Emilia is very remarkable. I've had the benefit of being there several times. Um, when I was at base, we brought the exhibition of their work over, which is inspirational and is very helpful, gives a good insight into their way of working. Malabutsi, the philosopher who really was behind it, um, described the hundred languages of children. You'll be familiar with all of that. Um, and there's a big emphasis on expressive and creative work. 
and they do have specialist artists in their in their workshops where children can go and invent, experiment, and do all sorts. And each day starts with a discussion with the small group of children and their staff, the adults who who work and play with them. And they just discuss what they're going to be doing today. They don't have a preset curriculum. They certainly don't have learning goals. Um, But the depth and the extent and the length of the explorations that go on, I've got some wonderful books that they've done. And actually, uh, you'll know about Sightlines. There was going to be a a trip to Reggio. I don't know if you knew that. It had to be cancelled because of that. No, I didn't know. Yes, and um, so three of us were going to go together, actually. Um, I've got some colleagues there who are going to be retiring soon, and I wanted to see that. But also the refreshing, it's like a shower going to Reggio, and you see people respecting children, listening to children, enjoying children. They could do more in the outdoors, I think. I, you know, it's... Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you a funny story. Um, when I came back from Reggio the second time, um, Margaret Hodge was a minister. And she, uh, on my recommendation, she arranged to go to Reggio. And at the time, her job title was Under Secretary of State for Education. And etiquette required that she went through Rome, through the ministers there. And they read secretary and they thought, oh, well, she's just a secretary, a school secretary. <laughs> and they sent her off to the wrong place and they didn't make a high level visit at all uh, until her secretary, her secretary, secretary uh, informed them that actually she was quite important. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that she really quite got it, but she did go to Reggio. And I'm very glad she did. I could wish I'd been with her actually to help her see into um, the complexity of it, the sophistication of it, the excitement. It, it is wonderful, and they are hanging on to it. And you know, they started in principle after the war. They just yes. wanted to build something um, creative and better. Because they, Can they you tell just... us a little bit about their documentation, because they're, they're really well known yes. for their unique way of observing children. Yes. Um, well, I would love to. Maybe I should send you some of their books. It's just done very, very carefully, but a lot of it is done through drawing. And children make a note, and there are lovely pictures of them talking and drawing a conversation where there are two heads looking at each other with the mouths open and the zigzag stuff going through. And where children could write words, you had words, but sometimes they just had dots or if it was shouting, it was big. Um, They just free the children to um, find a way of of representing what they're thinking. They've done what marvellous maps of their town. And you find out that way what's important to the children, what their perspective is and how they understand and perceive things. It's, It's quite exceptional. It's very, very interesting. And they trust children. And the youngest ones, they have little cradles, like little dog baskets, so that when they're ready to rest, they can crawl in when they're ready. They don't have a set rest time. They just get into their little nest, and when they're ready to come out, they come out. (laughs) Everything possible that the children can decide is given to them to decide. We have quite a long way to go, don't we? We will. We were getting there, and in fact, they learned from us as well, but it's not like that now. Mm. 
So Wendy, you, you have a role with the National Association for Primary Education, NAEP. Can you, can you tell us what your role is there and, and what your plans are for the future? In- well, on their council, they have representatives in various ways, and trustees, and I'm the ODS representative. And there's a, a lot to say, but it's very good working with them. Um, it would be accurate to say that they're, they're not as old as me, not many people are. <laughs> but they are of a vintage. I mean, England had a fantastic reputation for experimental, open-ended, exciting primary education. And they go back to that and they are still holding on to it. And people like Tim Brickhouse and Mick Waters are still active because they know that it really, really matters. And I'm very thankful that they're there. But it's increasingly difficult because heads have to, if they don't, if heads don't abide by the expectations that are enforced by Ofsted, then schools suffer. And that's not helpful. So we're in a trap. And it is a tragedy. And I'm really glad that you're ready to acknowledge the depth of experience and wisdom that exists in this country. And I'm very glad to encounter it in NAEP. Um, and there are still some primary heads who are able to hang on to those principles. Um, difficult. Yes. So I'm glad to be with them. And Tactic is absolutely wonderful because that's all of them. You know, they're all much better qualified than me. They're working to train, teach, educate early as people. Mm-hmm. And, and they are wonderful in their dedication and their energy and their commitment and their knowledge. Wonderful. And of course, training and continuing professional development is essential now. Well, and it's so poor now and and the funding in the private sector doesn't allow them to pay people. And I was very offended when um, the earliest professionals whose standards are are comparable to teaching standards, but they weren't given qualified teacher status. Mm. Outrageous. Yes. That's why I'm duly outraged. (laughs) I have to keep battling. We've had an absolutely wonderful discussion with you. I could listen to you all day. Your anecdotes are so interesting. (laughs) Sorry. I just want to mention a couple of names. Um, Sue Palmer in Upstart in Scotland is really, really carrying the banner and she's got good support there and frivol ideas of a strong up there too. And she is pushing for an earliest stage that would last until seven uh, she's got some very, very powerful advocates, and we need to do something like that. So when you ask me what I'm going to do in tactic, well, we're going to try. Uh, very trying, some people would say. But it, it, it's too important. We can't just let it go. So I want to thank you for your work, too. I think you've made record-keeping much more meaningful for people. It's still a bit onerous. I think we need to trust people to hold their insights and understanding. And if they're well qualified and if they're well supported, that's possible. And that, I know that from my own experience. Yes. Just mm. element of bravery in there, I think, somewhere as well, isn't there? That you don't always have to follow everything just because you think that's expected. It's a kind of, you've got to be quite brave and, and courageous in your own knowledge and experience. And it's, it's increasingly difficult. You know, it's all right for me, I can say it, but it's very, very hard. I've, I know a lot of young teachers who want to work this way, and there are some who can, and I know some very brave heads. 
and I am very fortunate to go and nursery of the year, you know, we have rigorous shortlisting, but there are some wonderful practitioners out there, whether they win the award or not. It, it's, it's humbling to see how people are working for the benefit of children and families and the future. It, it, there's nothing that matters more. Thanks for listening to this episode of the FSF and Tapestry podcast. If you want to be notified when we post new episodes, make sure to subscribe.